Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Fireside. I'm your host, Nicole. Fireside Anthology is a podcast where we collectively gather, relax, and listen to stories across all genres by a variety of authors. Come in, relax with us. Happy Halloween, dear listeners. Um, It's exciting to be recording the second part of a two-parter episode. Um, Just wanted to try something new, you know? New is always good. Freshen things up. Um, Would love to hear feedback, though. You know, if this definitely was not your your thing... (laughs) If it, um, if it wasn't, uh, great waiting for the second episode, uh, let me know. And maybe next time you won't do two-parters. But I had so much fun recording this, and, um, I hope that you do enjoy it. Well, enough about me brief word from our sponsors, and then part two of The Call of the Cthulhu. Hey listeners, are you interested in starting your very own podcast, but you're not quite sure where to start and everything's seems a little confusing, rest assured, Anchor is here to take out the confusion of starting your own podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. 
It's free, and we love free. There's creation tools right in the app that allow you to record and edit your podcast simply. You know, you don't even have to download a bunch of expensive equipment. All you need is what you already have in your hand. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You don't even have to worry about how to get it out there. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership simply by posting ads like this one. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place is at anchor.fm. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This is part two of The Call of Cthulhu by H.P. Lovecraft. The Tale of Inspector Lacrasse. The older matters which had made the sculptor's dream and bas-relief so significant to my uncle formed the subject of the second half of his long manuscript. Once before, it appears, Professor Angle had seen the hellish outlines of the nameless monstrosity, puzzled over the unknown hieroglyphics, and heard the ominous syllables which can only be rendered as Cthulhu. And all this in so stirring and horrible a connection that it is small wondered he pursued young Wilcox with queries and demands for data. The earlier experience had come in 1908. Seventeen years before, when the American Archaeological Society held its annual meeting in St. Louis, Professor Angle, as befitted one of his authority and attainments, had a prominent part in all the deliberations, and was one of the first to be approached by the several outsiders who took advantage of the convention to offer questions for correct answering and problems for expert solution. The chief of these outsiders, and in a short time the focus of entrance for the entire meeting, was a commonplace-looking middle-aged man who had traveled all the way from New Orleans for certain special information unobtainable from any local source. His name was John Raymond Lagrasse, and he was by profession an inspector of police. With him, he bore the subject of his visit a grotesque, repulsive, and apparently very ancient stone statuette whose origin he was at a loss to determine. It must not be fancied that Inspector Lagrasse had the least interest in archaeology. On the contrary, his wish for enlightenment was prompted by purely professional considerations. The statuette, idol, fetish, or whatever it was, had been captured some months before in the wooded swamps south of New Orleans during a raid in a supposed voodoo meeting and so singular and hideous were the rites connected with it that the police could not but realize that they had stumbled on a dark, dark cult totally unknown to them, and an infinitely more diabolical than even the blackest of the African voodoo circles. Of its origin, apart from the erratic and unbelievable tales extorted from the captured member, members, absolutely nothing was to be discovered. Hence the anxiety of the police for any antiquarian lore which might help them to place the frightful symbol and threw it tracked down the colt to its fountainhead. Inspector Legrasse was scarcely prepared for the sensation which his offering created. 
one sight of the thing had been enough to throw the assembled men of science into a state of tense excitement, and they lost no time in crowding around him to gaze at the diminutive figure whose strange whose utter strangeness and air of genuinely abysmal antiquity hinted so potently at unopened and archaic vistas. No recognized school of sculpture had animated this terrible subject, yet centuries and even thousands of years seemed recorded in its dim and greenish surface of unplaceable stone. The figure, which was finally passed slowly from man to man for close and careful study, was between seven and eight inches in height, and of exquisitely artistic workmanship. It represented a monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, but with an octopus-like head whose face was a mass of feelers, a scaly, rubbery-looking body, prodigious claws on hind and forefeet, and long, narrow wings behind. This thing, which seemed in instinct with a fearsome and unnatural malignancy, was of somewhat bloated corpulence and squatted evilly on a rectangular block or pedestal covered with undecipherable characters. The tips of the wings touched the back edge of the block, the seat occupied the entire, occupied the center, whilst the long curved claws of the doubled-up crouching hind legs gripped the front edge and extended a quarter of the way down toward the bottom of the pedestal. The cephalopod was bent forward so that the ends of the facial feelers brushed the backs of the huge forepaws which clasped the croucher's elevated knees. The aspect of the hole was abnormally lifelike, and the more subtly fearful because its source was not totally unknown. Its vast, awesome, and incalculable age was unmistakable, yet not one link did it show with any known type of art belonging to its civilization's youth, or indeed to any other time. Totally separate and apart, its very material was mystery, for the soapy greenish-black stone with its golden or iridescent flecks and striations resembled nothing familiar to geology or mineralogy. The characters along the base were equally baffling, and no member present, despite a representation of half the world's expert learning in the field, could form the least notion of even the remotest linguistic kinship. They, like the subject and material, belonged to something horribly remote and distinct from mankind as we know it, something frightfully suggestive of old and unhallowed cycles of life in which our world and our conceptions have no part. And yet, as the members severally shook their heads and confessed defeat at the inspector's problem, there was one man in that gathering who suspected a touch of bizarre familiarity in the monstrous shape and writing, and who presently told with some diffidence of the odd trifle he knew. This person was the late William Channing Webb, professor of anthropology in Princeton University and an explorer of no slight note. First, Professor Webb had been engaged forty-eight years before in a tour of Greenland and Iceland in search of some runic inscriptions which he failed to unearth, and whilst high up in the west Greenland coast had encountered a singular tribe or cult of degenerate Esquimaux whose religion, a curious form of devil worship, chilled him with its deliberate bloodthirstiness and repulsiveness. It was a faith of which other Esquimaux knew little, and which they mentioned only with shudders, saying that it had come down from horribly ancient eons before the world was ever made. 
Besides nameless rites and human sacrifices, there were certain queer hereditary rituals addressed to a supreme elder devil or tornasuk, and of this Professor Webb had taken a careful phonetic copy from an aged angekok, or wizard priest, expressing the sounds in Roman letters as best he knew how. But just now of prime significance was the fetish with which this cult had cherished, and around which they had danced when the aurora leapt high over the ice cliffs. It was, the professor stated, a very crude bas-relief of stone comprising a hideous picture and some cryptic writing. And so far as he could tell, it was a rough parallel in all essential features of the bestial thing now lying before the meeting. This data, received with suspense and astonishment by the assembled members, proved doubly exciting to Spectre Lacrosse, and he began at once to ply his informant with questions. Having noted and copied an oral ritual among the swamp cult worshippers his men had arrested, he besought the professor to remember as best he might the syllables taken down amongst the diabolist Equima. There then followed an exhaustive comparison of details, and a moment of really awed silence when both detective and scientist agreed on the virtual identity of the phrase common to two hellish rituals so many worlds of distance apart. What in substance both the Equimau wizards and the Louisiana swamp priests had chant chanted to their kindred idols was something very like this the word divisions being guessed at from traditional breaks in the phrase as chanted aloud. Vingulu, Mwangwalar, Kuthul, Kael, Walgunal, Fertun. Lagrasse had at one point in advance of Professor Webb for several among his mongrel prisoners had repeated to him what older celebrants had told them the words meant. This text, as given, ran something like this. In his house at Rilla, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. And now, in response to a general and urgent demand, Inspector Lagrasse related as fully as possible his experience with the swamp worshippers telling a story to which I could see my uncle attached profound significance. It savored of the wildest dreams of myth-maker and theosophist, and disclosed an astonishing degree of cosmic imagination among such half-castes and pariahs as, much be, as might be expected to possess it. On November 1st, 1907, there had come to New Orleans police a frantic summons from the swamp and lagoon country to the south. The squatters there, mostly primitive but good-natured descendants of Lafitte's men, were in the grip of stark terror from an unknown thing which had stolen upon them in the night. It was voodoo, apparently, but voodoo of a more terrible sort than they had ever known, and some of their women and children had disappeared since, since the malevolent tom-tom had begun its incessant beating far within the black-haunted woods where no dweller ventured. There were insane shouts and howling screams and soul-chilling chants and dancing devil flames, and the frightened messenger added, the people could stand it no more. So a body of twenty police, filling two carriages in an automobile, had set out in the late afternoon with the shivering squatter as a guide. At the end of the passable road they alighted, and for miles splashed on in silence through the terrible cypress woods where day never came. 
ugly roots and malignant hanging nooses of Spanish moss beset them, and now and then a pile of dank stones or fragment of a rotting wall intensified by its hint of morbid habitation and depression which every malformed tree and angry every fungus in it combined to create. At length the squatter settlement, a miserable huddle of huts, hove in sight, and hysterical dwellers ran out to cluster around the group of bobbing lanterns. The muffled beat of tom-toms was now faintly audible far ahead, and a curdling shriek came at infrequent intervals when the wind shifted. A reddish glare, too, seemed to filter through the pale undergrowth beyond endless avenues of forest night. Reluctant even to be left alone again, each one of the cowed squatters refused point-blank to advance another inch toward the scene of unholy worship. So Inspector Legrasse and his nineteen colleague plunged on unguided into the black arcades of horror that none of them had ever trod before. The region now entered by the police was one of traditionally evil repute, substantially unknown and untraversed by white men. There were legions of an unhidden late unglimpsed by morals mortal sight, in which dwelt a huge, formless, white polypous thing with luminous eyes, and the squatters whispered that bat-winged devils flew up out of caverns in inner earth to worship it at midnight. They said it had been there before Dierbeville, before La Salle, before the Indians, and before even the wholesome beasts and birds of the wood. It was a nightmare itself, and to see it was to die. But it made men dream, and so they knew enough to keep it away. The present voodoo orgy was, indeed, on the merest fringe of the suborned area, but that location was bad enough, and hence perhaps the very place of the worship had terrified the squatters more than the shocking sounds and incidents. Only poetry or madness could do justice to the noises heard by Lagrasse's men as they plowed on through the black morass towards the red glare and the muffled tom-toms. There were vocal qualities peculiar to men and vocal qualities peculiar to beasts, and it is terrible to hear the one when the source should yield the other. Animal fury and orgiastic lenience here whipped themselves to daemonic heights by howls and squawking ecstasies that tore and reverberated through those nighted woods like pest pestilential tempests from the gulfs of hell. Now and then the less organized elation would cease, and from what seemed a well-drilled chorus of hoarse voices would rise in sing-song chant that hideous phrase or ritual. Then the men, having reached a spot where the trees were thinner, came suddenly in sight of the spectacle itself. Four of them reeled, one fainted, and two were shaken into a frantic cry when the mad cacophony of the orgy fortunately deadened. Legrasse dashed swamped water in the face of the fainting men, and all trembled and nearly hypnotized with horror. In a natural glade of the swamp stood a grassy island of perhaps an acre's extent, clear of trees and tolerably dry. On this now leaped and twisted a more indescribable horde of human abnormality 
than any but a same or an anangoral could paint. A void of clothes this hybrid spawn were braying, bellowing, and writhing about a monstrous ring-shaped bonfire, in the center of which, revealed by occasional rifts in the curtain frame, flame, stood a great granite monolith some eight feet in height, on top of which, incongruous with its diminutiveness, rested the noxious carven statuette. From a wide circle of ten scaffolds set up at regular intervals with the flame-girthed monolith as center, hung, head downward, the oddly mawed bodies of the helpless squatters who had disappeared. It was inside the circle that the ring of worshippers jumped and roared, the general direction of the mass motion being from left to right, an endless bacchanal between the ring of bodies and the ring of fire. It may have been only imagination, and it may have only echoes which induced one of the men, an excitable Spaniard, to fancy he heard an antiphonal responses from, to the ritual from some far and unilluminated spot deeper within the wood of, legend, of ancient legendary and horror. This man, Joseph de Carvez, I later met and questioned, and he proved distractingly imaginative. He indeed went so far as to hint of the faint beating of great wings, and of a glimpse of shining eyes, and a mountainous white bulk beyond the motus trees. But I suppose he had been hearing too much native superstition. Actually, the horrified pause of the men was of comparatively brief duration. Duty came first and although there must have been nearly a hundred mongrel celebrants in the throng, the police relied on their firearms and plunged determinedly into the nauseous route. For five minutes the resultant din and chaos were beyond description. Wild blows were struck, shots were fired, and escapes were made, but in the end Lagrasse was able to count some forty-seven sullen prisoners whom he forced to dress in haste and fall into line between two rows of policemen. Five of the worshippers lay dead, dead, and two severely wounded ones were carried away on improvised stretchers by their fellow prisoners. The image on the monolith, of course, was carefully removed and carried back by Lagrasse. Examined at headquarters, after a trip of intense strain and weariness, the prisoners were all proved to be men of very low mixed blood and mentally aberrant type. Most were seamen, with a sprinkling of black men and mulattoes, largely West Indians or Brava Portuguese from the wet from the Cape Verde Islands, and gave a colouring of voodooism to the heterogeneous cult. But before many questions were asked, it became manifest that something far deeper and older than Negro fetishism was involved. Degraded and ignorant as they were, the creatures held with surprising consistency to the central idea of their loathsome faith. They worshipped, so they said, the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men, and who came to the young world out of the sky. Those old ones were gone now, inside the earth and under the sea, but their dead bodies had told their secrets and dreams to the first men, who formed a cult which had never died. This was that cult and the prisoners said it had always existed, and would always exist, hidden in distant wastes and dark places all over the world, until some 
time when the great priest Cthulhu from his dark house in the mighty city of Villette under the waters should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway. Some day he would call when the stars are ready and the secret cult would always be waiting to liberate him. Meanwhile, no more must be told. There was a secret which even tortured could not extract. Mankind was not absolutely alone among the conscious things of earth, for shapes came out of the dark to visit the faithful few. But these were not the great old ones. No man had ever seen the old ones. The carven idol was great Cthulhu, but none might say whether or not the others were precisely like him. No one could read the old writing now, but things were told by word of mouth. The chanted ritual was not the secret. That was never spoken aloud, only whispered. The chant on meant only this. In his house, at Villers, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. Only two of the prisoners were found sane enough to be hanged, and the rest were committed to various institutions. All denied a part in the ritual murders and averred that the killing had been done by blacked wings ones, which had come to them from their immemorial meeting place in the haunted wood. But of these mysterious allies no coherent account could ever be gained. But the police did extract came mainly from an immensely aged mestizo named Castro, who claimed to have sailed to strange ports and talked with undying leaders of the cult in the mountains of China. Old Castro remembered bits of hideous legend that paled the speculations of theosophists and made man and the world seem recent and transient indeed. There had been aeons when other things ruled the earth, and they had had great cities, remains of them, he said. The deathless Chinamen had told him were still to be found as cyclopean stones on islands in the Pacific. They all died vast epochs of time before men came, but there were arts which could revive them when the stars had come round again to the right positions in the cycle of eternity. They had indeed come themselves from the stars, and they had brought their images with them. These great old ones, Castro continued, were not composed altogether of flesh and blood. They had shape, for did not this star-fashioned image prove it? But that shape was not made of matter. When the stars were right, they could plunge from world to world through the sky, but when the stars were wrong, they could not live. But although they no longer lived, they would never really die. They all lay in stone houses in their great city of Rilla, preserved by the spells of mighty Cthulhu for a glorious resurrection when the stars and the earth might once more be ready for them. But at that time, some force from outside must serve to liberate their bodies. The spells that preserved them intact likewise prevented them from making an initial move, and they could only lie awake in the dark and think whilst uncounted millions of years rolled by. They all knew that was occurring in the universe, but their mode of speech was transmitted thought. Even now they talked in their tombs. When, after infinities of chaos, the first men came, the great old ones spoke to the sensitive among them by molding their dreams. For only thus could their language reach the fleshly minds of mammals. Then, whispered Castro, those first men formed the cult, 
around small idols which the Great Ones showed them, idols brought in dim areas from dark stars. That cult would never die until the stars came right again, and the secret priest could take Great Cthulhu from his tomb to his, revive his subjects and resume his rule of Earth. The time would be easy to know, for then mankind would be have become as the great old ones, free and wild and beyond good and evil, with laws and morals thrown aside, and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy. Then the liberated old ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves, and all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Meanwhile, the cult, by appropriate rites, must keep alive the memory of those ancient ways and shadows forth the prophecy of their return. In the elder time, chosen men had talked with the entombed old ones in dreams, but then something happened. The great stone city Rela, with its monolith and cephalos, had sunk beneath the waves, and the deep waters, full of the one primal mystery through which not even thought can pass, had cut off the spectral intercourse. But memory never died and the high priest said that the city would rise again when the stars were right. Then came out of the earth the black spirits of earth, moldy and shadowy and full of dim rumors picked up in caverns beneath forgotten sea bottoms. But of them old Castro dared not speak much. He cut himself off hurriedly, and no amount of persuasion or subtlety could elicit more in this direction. The size of the old ones, too, he curiously declined to mention of the cult, he said that he thought the center lay among the pathless deserts of Arabia, where Irem, the city of pillars, dreams hidden and untouched. It was not allied to the European witch cult, and was virtually unknown beyond its members. No book had ever really hinted of it, though the deathless Chinaman said that there were double meanings in the necromion of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred which the initiated might read as they chose, especially the must-discuss couplet. That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons even death may die. The grass, deeply impressed and not a little bewildered, had inquired in vain concerning the historic affiliations of the cult. Castro apparently had told the truth when he said it was wholly secret. The authorities at Tulane University could shed no light on either cult or image, and now the detective had come to the highest authorities in the country, and met with no more than the Greenland tale of Professor Webb. The feverish interest aroused at the meeting by Lagrassi's tale, corroborated as it was by the statuette, is echoed in the subsequent correspondence of those who attended though scant mention occurs in the formal publications of the society. Caution is the first care of those accustomed to face occasional charlatanry and imposture. Legrasse for some time lent the image to Professor Webb, but at the latter's death it was returned to him and remains in his possession, where I viewed it not long ago. It is truly a terrible thing and unmistakably akin to the dream sculpture of young Wilcox. That my uncle was excited by the tale of the sculpture I did not wonder, for what thoughts must arise upon hearing, after a knowledge of what Legrasse had learned of the cult, 
of a sensitive young man who had dreamed not only the figure and exact hieroglyphics of the swamp-found image and the Greenland Devil Tablet, but had come in his dreams upon at least three of the precise words of the formula uttered alike by Esquimal, Diabolicist, and Mongrel Louisianians. Professor Ongel's instant start on an investigation of the utmost thoroughness was eminently natural, though privately I suspected young Wilcox of having heard of the cult in some indirect way, and of having invented a series of dreams to heighten and continue the mystery at my uncle's expense. The dream narratives and cuttings collected by the professor were, of course, strong corroboration, but the rationalism of my mind and the extravagance of the whole subject had led me to adopt what I thought the most sensible conclusions. So after thoroughly studying the manuscript again, and correlating the theosophical and anthropological notes with the cult narrative of Lucrasse, I made a trip to Providence to see the sculptor and give him the rebuke I thought proper for so boldly imposing upon a learned and aged man. Wilcox still lived alone in the Fleur-de-Lis building in Thomas Street, a hideous Victorian imitation of 17th century Brayton architecture, which flaunts its stuccoed front amidst the lovely colonial houses on the ancient hill and under the very shadow of the finest Gregorian steeple in America. I found him at work in his rooms, and at once conceded from the specimens scattered about that his genius is indeed profound and authentic. He will, I believe, some time be heard from as one of the great decadents, for he is crystallized in clay and will one day mirror in marble those nightmares and fantasies with which Arthur Mecken evokes in prose, and Clark Ashton Smith makes visible in verse and in painting. Dark, frail, and somewhat upkept in aspect, he turned languidly at my knock and asked me my business without rising. When I told him who I was, he displayed some interest. For my uncle had excited his curiosity in probing his strange dreams, yet had never explained the reason for the study. I did not enlarge his knowledge in this regard, but sought with some subtlety to draw him out. In a short time I became convinced of his absolute sincerity, for he spoke of the dreams in a manner none could mistake. They and their subconscious residuum had influenced his art profoundly, and he showed me a morbid statue whose contours almost made me shake with the potency of its black suggestion. He could not recall having seen the original of this thing except in his own dream bas-relief but the outlines had formed themselves insensibly under his hands. It was, no doubt, the giant shape he had raved of in delirium. That he really knew nothing of the hidden cult save from what my uncle's relentless catechism had let fall he soon made clear, and again I strove to think of some way in which he could possibly have received the weird impressions. He talked of his dreams in a strangely poetic fashion, making me see with terrible vividness the damp Psychopolium city of the slimy green stone, whose geometry, he oddly said, was all wrong, and hear with frightened expectancy the ceaseless half-mental callings from underground. Cthulhu. Fatagen. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cthulhu. Fatagen. The words have formed part of that dread ritual which told of dead Cthulhu's dream vigil in his stone vault at Valais and I felt deeply moved despite my rational beliefs. Wilcox, I was sure, had heard of the cult in some casual way and had soon forgotten it amidst the mass of his equally weird readings and imagining. Later, by virtue of its sheer impressiveness, it had found some conscious expression in dreams, in the bas-relief, and in the terrible statue I now beheld, so that his imposture upon my uncle had been a very innocent one. The youth was of a type at once slightly affected and slightly ill-mannered, which I could never like. But I was willing enough now to admit both his genius and his honesty. I took leave of him amicably and wished him all the success in his talent promises. The matter of the cult still remained to fascinate me, and at times I had visions of personal fame from researches into its origin and connections. I visited New Orleans, talked with Lagrasse and others of that old-time raiding party, saw the frightful image, and even questioned such of the mongrel prisoners as still survived. Old Castro, unfortunately, had been dead for some years. What I now heard so graphically at first hand, though it was really no more than a detailed confirmation of what my uncle had written, excited me afresh. 
for I felt sure that I was on the track of a very real, very secret, and very absolute materialism, as I wish it still were, and I discounted with an almost explicable perversity the coincidence of the dream notes and the odd cuttings collected by Professor Angle. One thing I began to suspect, and which I fear I now know, is that my uncle's death was far from natural. He fell on a narrow street leading up from an ancient waterfront swarming with foreign mongrels after a careless push from a black sailor. I did not forget the mixed blood and marine pursuits of the cult members in Louisiana, and would not be surprised to learn of secret methods and poison needless as poison needles as ruthless and as anciently known as the cryptic rites and beliefs. Legrasse and his men, it is true, have been let alone. But in Norway, a certain seaman who saw things is dead. Might not the deeper inquiries of my uncle after encountering the sculptor's data have come to its sinister ears? I think Professor Angle died because he knew too much, or because he was likely to learn too much. Whether I shall go as he did remains to be seen, for I have learned much now. Part 3. The Madness from the Sea If heaven ever wishes to grant me a boon, it will be a total effacing of the results of a mere chance which fixed my eye on a certain stray piece of shelf paper. It was nothing on which I would naturally have stumbled in the course of my daily round, for it was an old number of an Australian journal, the Sydney Bulletin, for April 18, 1925. It escaped even the cutting bureau which had, at the time of its issuance, been avidly collecting material for my uncle's research. I had largely given over my inquiries and went into what Professor Angle called the Cthulhu cult, and was visiting a learned friend in Patterson, New Jersey, the curator of a local museum and a mineralogist of note. Examining one day the reserved specimens roughly set in the storage shelves in a rear room of the museum, my eye was caught by an odd picture in one of the old papers spread beneath the stones. It was the Sydney Bulletin I have mentioned for my friend had wide afflictions in all conceivable foreign parts, and the picture was a half-cut, a half-toned cut of a hideous stone image almost identical with that which Legrasse had found in the swamp. Eagerly clearing the sheet of its precious contents, I scanned the item in detail, and was disappointed to find it only of moderate length. What it suggested, however, was of portentous significance to my flagging quest and I carefully tore it out for immediate action. It read as follows. Mystery derelict found at sea. Vigilant arise with helpless armed New Zealand yacht in tow. One survivor and dead man found aboard. Tale of desperate battle and deaths at sea. Rescued seaman refuses. Particulars of strange experience. Odd idol found in his possession. Inquiry to follow. 
The Morrison Company's freighter vigilante bound from Valparaiso arrived this morning at its wharf in Darling Harbor, having in tow the battled and disabled but heavily armed steam yacht Alert of Dunedin, New Zealand, which sighted April 12th in South Latitude 3421 West, Longitude 15217 with one living and one dead man aboard. The vigilant left Valparaiso March 25th, and on April 2nd was driven considerably south of her course by exceptionally heavy storms and monster waves. On April 12th, the derelict was sighted, and though apparently deserted, was found upon boarding to contain one survivor in a half-delirious condition and one man who had evidently been dead for more than a week. The living man was clutching a horrible stone idol of unknown origin about foot in height, regarding whose nature authorities at Sydney University, the Royal Society, the Museum, and College Street all profess complete bafflement, and which the survivor says he found in the cabin of the yacht in a small carved shrine of a common pattern. The man, after recovering his senses, told an exceedingly strange story of piracy and slaughter. He is Gustav Jansen, a Norwegian of some intelligence, and has been second mate of the two-masted schooner Emin of Auckland, which sailed for Callao February 20th with a complement of 11 men. The Emma, he says, was delayed and thrown wildly south of her course in the great storm of March 1st, and on March 22nd, in south latitude 49.51, west longitude 128.34, countered the alert, manned by a queer and evil-looking crew of Kanakas and half-castes. Being ordered preemptorily to turn back, Captain Collins refused, whereupon the strange cue began to fire savagely and without warning upon the schooner with a particularly heavy battery of brass cannon forming part of the yacht's equipment. The Emma's men showed fight, says the survivors, and though the schooner began to sink from shots beneath the waterline, they managed to heave alongside their enemy and board her, grappling with the savage crew on the yacht's deck and being forced to kill them all, the number being slightly superior because of their particularly abhorrent, desperate, though rather clumsy mode of fighting. Three of the Emma's men, including Captain Collins and first mate Green, were killed, and the remaining eight under second mate Johansson proceeded to navigate the captured yacht, going ahead in their original direction to see if any reason for their ordering back had existed. The next day, it appears, they raised and landed on a small island, though none is known to exist in that part of the ocean, and six of the men somehow died ashore, although Johansson is queerly reticent about this part of the story and speaks only of their falling into a rock chasm. Later, it seems, he and one companion boarded the yacht and tried to manage her, but were beaten about by the storm of April 2nd. From that time till his rescue on the 12th, the man remembers little. He does not even recall when William Bryden, his companion, died. Bryden's death reveals no apparent cause and was probably due to excitement or exposure. Cable advices from Dunedin report that the alert was well known there as an island trade and bore an evil reputation among the waterfront. It was owned by a curious group of half-castes whose frequent meetings and night trips to the woods attracted no little curiosity, and it had set sail in great haste just after the storm and earth tremors of March 1st. Our Auckland correspondent gives the Emma and her crew an excellent reputation, and Johansson is described as a sober and worthy man. The Admiralty will institute an inquiry on the whole matter beginning tomorrow, at which every effort will be made to induce Johansson to speak more freely than he has done hitherto. This was all, together with a picture of the Hallis image, but what a train of ideas it started in my mind. Here were new treasures of daylight on the Cthulhu cult, and evidence that it had strange interest at sea as well as on land, 
What motive prompted the hybrid crew to order back the Emma as they sailed about with their hideous idol? What was the unknown island on which six of the Emma's crew had died, and about which the mate Johansen was so secretive? What had held the vice-admiralty's investigation brought out? And what was known of the noxious cult in Dunedin? And most marvelous of all, what deep and more than natural linkage of dates was this which gave a malign and now undeniable significance to the various turn of events so carefully noted by my uncle? March 1st, our February 28th, according to the international date line, the earthquake and storm had come. From Dunedin, the alert, and her noisome crew had darted eagerly forth as if imperiously summoned, and while on the other side of the earth poets and artists had begun to dream of a strange, dank, cyclopean city, while a young, young sculptor had molded in his sleep the form of the dreaded Cthulhu. March 23rd, the crew of the Emma landed on an unknown island and left six men dead, and on that date the dreams of sensitive men assumed a heightened vividness and darkened with dread of a giant monster's malign pursuit, whilst an architect had gone mad and a sculptor had lapsed suddenly into delirium. And what of the storm of April 2nd, the date on which all dreams of the dank city ceased and Wilcox emerged unharmed from the bondage of strange fever? What of all this, and of those hints of old Castro about the sunken starborn old ones and their coming reign, their faithful cult, and their mastery of dreams? Was I tottering on the brink of cosmic horrors beyond man's power to bear? If so, they must be horrors in the mind alone, for in some way the second of April had put a stop to whatever monstrous menace had begun its siege of mankind's soul. That evening, after a day of hurried cabling and arranging, I bade my host adieu and took a train for San Francisco. In less than a month I was in Dunedin, where, however, I found that little was known of the strange cold members who had lingered in the old sea taverns. Waterfront scum was far too common for special mention, though there was a vague talk about one inland trip those mongrels had made, during which faint drumming and red flame were noted in distant hills. In Auckland, I learned that Johnson had returned with yellow hair turned white after a perfunctory and inconclusive questioning at Sydney, and had thereafter sold his cottage in West Street and sailed with his wife to his old home in Oslo. Of his stirring experience, he would tell his friends no more than he had told the Admiralty off of officials, and all they could do was give me his Oslo address. After that, I went to Sydney and talked profitlessly with seamen and members of the Vice-Admiralty Court. I saw the alert, now sold and in commercial use, at Circular Quay in Sydney Cove, but gained nothing from its non-committal bulk. The crouching image with its cuttlefish head, dragon body, scaly wings, and hieroglyphs pedestal were preserved in the museum at Hyde Park, and I studied it long and well, finding it a thing of baleful, exquisite workmanship, and with the same utter mystery terrible antiquity and unearthly strangeness of the material which I had noted in Legras' smaller specimen. Geologists, the curator told me, had found it a monstrous puzzle, for they vowed that the world held no rock like it. Then I thought with a shudder of what old Castro had told Legras about the primal great ones. They had come from the stars and had brought their images with them. 
shaken with such a mental revolution as I had never known before, I now resolved to visit Mate Johansen in Oslo. Sailing for London, I re-embarked at once for the Norwegian capital, and one autumn day landed at the trim wharves in the shadow of the Eggeberg. Johansen's address, I discovered, lay in the old town of King Harald Harada, which kept alive the name of Oslo during all the centuries that the greater city masqueraded as Christiana. I made the brief trip by taxicab and knocked with palpant heart at the door of a neat and ancient building with plastered front. A sad-faced woman in black answered my summons, and I was stung with disappointment when she told me in halting English that Eustaf Johansen was no more. He had not survived his return, said his wife, for the doings at sea in 1925 had broken him. He had told her no more than he had told the public, but left a long manuscript of technical matters, as he said, written in English, evidently in order to safeguard her from the peril of casual perusal. During a walk through a narrow lane near the Gothenburg dock, a bundle of papers falling from an attic window had knocked him down. Two Lascar sailors at once helped him to his feet, but before the ambulance could reach him he was dead. Physicians found no adequate cause for the end, and laid it to heart trouble in a weakened constitution. I felt gnawing at my vitals that dark terror will never leave me until I too am at rest, accidentally or otherwise. Pursuing the widow, persuading the widow that my connection with her husband's technical matters was sufficient to entitle me to his manuscript, I bore the document away and began to read it on the London boat. It was a simple rambling thing, a naive sailor's effort at a post-facto diary, and strove to recall day by day that last awful voyage. I cannot attempt to transcribe it verbatim in all its cloudiness and redundance, but I will tell it's just enough to show why the sound of the water against the vessel's side became so unendurable to me that I stopped my ears with cotton. Johansen, thank God, did not know quite all, even though he saw the city and the thing. But I shall never sleep calmly again, and when I think of the horrors that lurk ceaselessly behind life and time and its base, and of those unhallowed blasphemes from elder stars which dream beneath the sea, known and favored by a nightmare cult ready and eager to loose them on the world when whenever another earthquake shall have their monstrous shall heave their monstrous stone city again to the sun and air. Johansen's voyage had begun just as he told it to the vice-admiralty. The Emma, in ballast, had cleared Auckland on February 20th, and had felt the full force of that earthquake-born tempest, which must have heaved up from the sea-bottom the horrors that filled men's dreams. Once more under control, the ship was making good progress when held up by the alert on March 22nd, and I could feel the mate's regret as he wrote of her bombardment and seeking. Of the swarthy cult fiends on the alert, he speaks with significant horror. There was some peculiarly ab abominable quality about them which made their destruction seem almost a duty, and Johansson shows in ingenuous wonder at the charge of ruthlessness brought against his party during the proceedings of the court of inquiry. Then, 
Driven ahead by curiosity in their captured yacht under Johansson's command, the men sight a great stone pillar sticking out of the sea, and in south latitude 47.9, west longitude 126.43, come upon a coastline of mingled mud, ooze, and weedy Sokopian masonry, which can be nothing less than the tangible substance of Earth's supreme terror, the nightmare corpse city of Relais, which was built-in measureless eons beyond the history of the vast loathsome shapes that seeped down from the dark stars. There lay great Cthulhu and his hordes, hidden in green slimy vaults, and sending out at last, after cycles incalculable, the thoughts that spread fear to the dreams of the sensitive, and called imperiously to the faithful to come on a pilgrimage of liberation and restoration. All this Johansen did not suspect, but God knows he soon saw enough. I suppose that only a single mountain top, the hideous monolith crowned citadel whereupon great Cthulhu was buried, actually emerged from the waters. When I think of the extent of all that may breathe brooding down there, I almost wished to kill myself forthwith. Johansen and his men were awed by the cosmic majesty of this dripping bowed lawn of elder daemons, and must have guessed without guidance that it was nothing of this or any sane planet. Ah, at the unbelievable size of the greenish stone blocks, at the dizzying height of the great carven monoliths, and at the stupefying identity of the colossal statues and bas-reliefs with the queer image found in its shrine on the alert, this poignantly visible in every line of the mate's frightened description. Without knowing what futurism is like, Johansen achieves something very close to it when he spoke of the city. For instead, of describing any definite structure or building, he dwells only on broad impressions of vast angles and stone services, services too great to belong to anything right or proper for this earth, and impious with horrible images and hieroglyphs. I mention his talk about angles because it suggests something that Wilcox had told me of his awful dreams. He has said that the geometry of this dream place he saw was abnormal, non-Euclidean, and loathsomely redolent of spheres and dimensions apart from ours. Now an unlettered seaman felt the same thing whilst gazing at the terrible reality. Johansen and his men landed at a sloping mud bank on this monstrous acropolis and clambered slippery up over titan oozy blocks which could have no mortal staircase. The very sun of heaven seemed distorted when viewed through the polarizing miasma welling out from the sea-soaked perversion and twisted menace and suspense lurked leeringly in those crazily elusive lines of carven rock where a second glance shewed concavity after the first shewed convexity. Something very like fright had come over all the explorers before anything more definite than rock and ooze and weed was seen. Each would have fled had he not feared the scorn of the others, and it was only half-heartedly that they searched, vainly, as it proved, for some portable souvenir to bear away. 
It was Rodriguez the Portuguese who climbed up the foot of the monolith and shouted of what he had found. The rest followed him and looked curiously at the immense carved door with the now familiar squid dragon bas-relief. It was, Johansen said, like a great barn door, and they all felt that it was a door because of the ornate lintel threshold and yams around it though they could not describe whether it lay flat like a trap-door or slantwise like an outside cellar door. His Wilcox would have said, the geometry of the place was all wrong. One could not be sure that the sea and the ground were horizontal, hence the relative position of everything else seemed phantasmally variable. Bryden pushed at the stone in several places without result. Then Donovan felt over it delicately around the edge, pressing each point separately as he went. He climbed interminably among the grotesque stone molding, that is, one would call it climbing if the thing was not after all horizontal, and the men wondered how any door in the universe could be so vast. Then very softly and slowly the great the acre great planel began to give inward at the top and they saw that it was balanced. Donovan Slater somehow propelled himself down or along the yam and rejoined his fellows, and everyone watched the clear recision of the monstrously carven portal. In this fantasy of prismatic distortion, it moved anonymously in a diagonal way so that all the rules of matter and perspective seemed upset. The aperture was black with a darkness almost material. The tenbroisness was indeed a positive quality, but it obscured such parts of the inner walls as ought to have been revealed and actually burst forth like smoke from its aeon-long imprisonment, visibly darkening the sun as it slunk away into the shrunken and glibbous sky on flapping membrous wings. The odor arising from the newly opened depths was intolerable, and at length the quick-eared Hawkins thought he heard a nasty, slopping sound down there. Everyone listened, and everyone was listening still when it lumbered slobberingly into sight and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway into the tainted outside air of that poison city of madness. Poor Johansen's handwriting almost gave out when he wrote of this. Of the six men who never reached the ship, he thinks two perished of pure fright on that accursed instant. The thing cannot be described. There is no language for such a business of shrieking and immemorial lunacy, such eldritch contradictions of all matter, force, and cosmic order. A mountain walked or stumbled. God, what wonder that across the earth a great architect went mad, and poor Wilcox raved with fever in that telepathic instant. The thing of the idols, the green, sticky spawn of the stars, had awakened to claim his own. The stars were right again, and what an age-old cult had failed to do by design, a band of innocent sailors had done by accident. After vigilations of years, great Cthulhu was loose again and ravening for delight. Three men were swept up by the flabby claws before anybody turned. God rest them. 
if there be any rest in the universe. They were Donovan, Guerra, and Angstrom. Parker slipped as the other three were plunging frenziedly over endless vistas of green-crusted rock to the boat, and Johansen swears he was swallowed up by an angle of masonry which shouldn't have been there, an angle which was acute but behaved as if it were obtuse. So only Bryden and Johansen reached the boat and pulled desperately for the alert as mountainous monstrosity flopped down the slimy stones and hesitated floundering at the edge of the water. Steam had not been suffered to go down entirely despite the departure of all hands for the shore and it was the work of only a few moments of feverish rushing up and down between the wheel and engines to get the alert underway. Slowly amidst the distorted horrors of that indescribable scene she began to turn the lethal waters whilst on the masonry of that charnel shore that was not of earth the titan thing from the stars slavered and glibbered like polyphene cursing the fleeing ship of odysseus then bolder than the storied cyclops great cthulhu slid greasily into the water and began to pursue with vast wave-raising strokes of cosmic potency bryden looked back and went mad laughing shrilly as he kept on laughing at intervals till death found him one night in the cabin whilst Johansen was wandering deliriously. But Johansen was not given out yet. Knowing that the thing could surely overtake the alert until steam was fully up, he resolved on a desperate chance, and setting the engine for full speed, ran lightning-like on deck and reversed the wheel. There was a mighty eddying and foaming in the noisome brine, and as the steam mounted higher and higher, the brave Norwegian drove his vessel head-on against the pursuing jelly which rose above the unclean froth like the stern of a demon gallon. The awful squid head with writhing feelers came nearly up to the bowsprit of the sturdy yacht, but Johansen drove on relentlessly. There was a bursting as of an exploding bladder, a slushy nastiness as of a cloven sunfish, a stench of a, as of a thousand open graves, and a sound that the chronicler would not put on paper. For an instant, the ship was befouled by an acrid and blinding green cloud, and then there was only a venomous seething astern where God in heaven... The scattered placicity of that nameless sky-spawn was nebulously recombining in its hateful original form, whilst its distance widened every second as the alert gained impetus from its mounting steam. That was all. After that, Johansen only brooded over the idol in the cabin and attended to a few matters of food for him and the laughing maniac by his side. He did not try to navigate after the first bold flight, for the reaction had taken something out of his soul. Then came the storm of April 2nd and the gathering of the clouds about his consciousness. There is a sense of spectral whirling through liquid gulfs of infinity, of dizzying rides through reeling universes on a comet's tail and of 
hysterical plunges from the pit to the moon and from the moon back again to the pit, all livened by a cockinating chorus of the distorted hilarious elder gods and the green, bat-winged, mocking imps of Tartarus. Out of that dream came rescue, the vigilant, the vice-admiralty court, the streets of Dunedin, and the long voyage back home to the old house by the Eggeberg. He could not tell. They would think him mad. He would write of what he knew before death came, but his wife must not guess. Death would be a boon if only it could blot out the memories. That was the document I read, and I have now placed it in the tin box beside the bas-relief and the papers of Professor Angle. With it shall go this record of mine, this test of my own sanity, wherein is pieced together that which I hope may never be pieced together again. I have looked upon all that the universe has had to hold of horror, and even the skies of spring and the flowers of summer must ever afterward be poison to me. But I do not think my life will be long, as my uncle went, as poor Johansen went. So shall I go. I know too much, and the colt still lives. Cthulhu still lives too, I suppose, again, in that chasm of stone which has shielded him since the sun was young. His accursed city is sunken once more. For the vigilant sailed over the spot after the April storm, but his ministers on earth still bellow and prance and slay around idle capped monoliths in lonely places. He must have been trapped by the sinking whilst within his black abyss, or the world would now be screaming with fright and frenzy. Who knows the end? What is risen may sink. And what is sink may rise. Loathsomeness waits and dreams in the deep, and decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. A time will come, but I must not and cannot think. Let me pray that, if I do not survive this manuscript, my executors may put caution before audacity and see that it meets no other eye. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed our story this week. Um, if you did, there's one way that you could show your appreciation for this podcast. Please tell a friend. Subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Um, those two ways help us more than you would ever imagine, you know? We just want to make our way into more ears and settle into more bedrooms and living rooms and quiet spaces. And, um, you know, you can help with that by sharing. If you so feel inclined to support us even more than you are right now, because, dear listener, just your presence here is support 
please feel free to buy us a coffee that's not an actual coffee but monetary support through co-fi.com slash fireside antho the link is you know our bio and on our instagram where you can find us at fireside antho well that's all for this week dear listener i hope that you found some rest with this story until then good night hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 